electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Morgan Brennan. Cramer has the morning off. Futures improving here to start the week on the heels of David Tepper's comments on rates, which we'll get to, along with more reopening headlines. And, of course, the Senate passing stimulus with few changes sets the House for a sets the table for a final House vote tomorrow. Our roadmap begins with rising yields, keeping pressure on tech. Why David Tepper tells CNBC it's not the time to be bearish. Plus, oh, yeah, GameStop shares, they're up yet again. The retailer tapping board member and Chewy co-founder Ryan Cohen to lead its shift into e-commerce. And Hacking America, first SolarWinds, now Microsoft Exchange servers breached. Top cybersecurity stocks are tumbling more than 10% in the past month. We're going to talk about that on this busy Monday, Carl. Rewield, Morgan, uh, as we uh, sort of kick around what uh, David Tepper has told CNBC this morning, David, you know, there's been a lot of hand-wringing over the weekend about what's the threshold for pain for equities. When does it change rotation into wholesale selling? Uh, B of A this morning on Squawk talking about 175. But if Tepper's right and that rates have made most of their move for now, it does have big implications for growth. It does. Uh, And listen, he keeps it pretty simple, Tepper, and he has also the advantage of having been right many times. So we listen closely when he speaks, as you well know, uh, Carl. And so we're doing that this morning, and the market's perhaps also paying a bit of attention. After what has been a tumultuous last few weeks, of course, uh, in particular for those growth names that we've been talking about, many of them down as much as 20% or so, but he's saying... Uh, in talking to uh, Joe, you know, combination of stimulus and low Japanese bond yields, for example, positive for stocks. And to your point, uh, Morgan, he thinks that the selling of treasuries may be over. Hence, the yields may may have uh, hit at least a high for now. Yeah, which is, of course, the great debate. Have we sort of hit that, you know, given the velocity of the move we have seen in something like the 10-year treasury yield, um, you know, have we hit that level, you know, that sort of key level of, of trading, of selling for now, or is this moving up to 2%, especially with the stimulus package now poised to be uh, passed in the House and signed into law? Um, that does seem to be the debate. Also just worth noting, looking at that futures board, is the Nasdaq is still uh, the major average that is under pressure, poised to uh, open today a bit lower. I mean, this has been a great rotation that is underway. CFRA had a, had a good note sort of Putting it all into perspective, uh, this morning that the 10-year note yielded 0.93% on December 31st. It soared to 1.54% as of March 4th. Since posting its last all-time high on February 12th, the S&P has fallen 2.4%. And if you dig down and look across the different sectors, it's consumer discretionary and tech sectors, which were the big winners last year in the midst of the pandemic, rose 32 and 42% respectively, have fallen the most since that S&P February 12th peak Uh, And it has been some of those weaker names in 2020 that have been some of the strongest or most resilient uh, in the last couple of weeks as well, Carl. 
Yep. Uh, it's going to be a great day, guys, to talk to Kathy Wood, of course, later on this afternoon on Closing Bell. Uh, get her sense as to how this rotation is working its way out. That's going to be a big one. And obviously responding, perhaps agreeing with what Tepper is saying. Uh, David, uh, you know, over the weekend, uh, Morgan Stanley, for example, Mike Wilson is I think everybody is sort of where Kramer has been for the last couple of weeks, and I wish Jim were here, but the, the general point being economy is going to be on fire. Uh, Q2 growth is going to be huge. I think Goldman's at 11. By the way, Goldman year-end unemployment forecast now down to 4.1. So the table set for a good year, but the rotation is so big and the, the portfolios are so out of position on these new cyclical names that Wilson says you know, the NDX goes back to its 200-day year-end target 3,900. So it's a big boat to turn. It is. And it's one that we will continue to watch closely. And it's a story that, of course, is going to will play out over these next coming months. The growth targets, as you say, are quite significant, uh, at least at many firms in terms of what they see GDP at. Um, with the one point nine trillion, we're on the precipice now. Of course, the House is going to be and we'll get an update from Elon shortly on uh, on where things stand. But uh, very likely, as the president indicated, that checks are going to go out in the next few weeks, I guess. Uh, and we are all going back, or at least the, uh, the expectation is that there is a return to normalcy occurring at a more rapid pace now. Um, Morgan, given the prevalence of vaccines, we're hitting mm-hmm. some new numbers in terms of how many people are getting vaccinated every day. And so take those together and we come back to this question of will we have inflation? Will yields actually go higher? Uh, even though Mr. Tepper says perhaps we've hit a, 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 a recent high. And what will it mean for these continued growth names that we follow so closely that have, of course, been the engine behind uh, so much of the gains that we've seen over the last year or so, uh, or let's at least call it since April of last year? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the inflation debate, and I realize the Fed is very narrow in terms of how they define inflation and what they're tracking. Um, you've been to the grocery store lately? My my bill has certainly gone up. Child care, trying to secure child care lately, it's been higher freight costs. We've been hearing about that from companies in the midst of earnings season as well. You could talk about health care. You could talk about housing. Some of those areas, commodities prices, some of those areas where we've seen pressure both in terms of businesses and also just in terms of consumers. But I mean, just look no further than the jobs report last week and where we saw the strongest growth uh, within that better than expected number. It is in things like leisure and hospitality, which was, of course, the hardest hit in the pandemic. And as we see states Pushing forward with reopening efforts, some states more than others, you are starting to see some of those jobs come back, which, again, I think gets right to the heart of this inflation discussion and just how strong the economic growth could be this year. Carl. Uh, No question. Uh, With Brent at 70 and uh, WTI near 68 today, that's the highest going back to 2018. Uh, joining us this morning, uh, CIO for uh, Nuveen's Global Equity Division, Sarah Malik's with us. She's among those recognized this year in Barron's list of the 100 most influential women in U.S. finance. Uh, Sarah, thanks for the time. It's great to see you. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, so we're having this discussion. Obviously, you've probably been listening the last couple of minutes. There was some um, notice of Friday's action, and even with that robust jobs number, at least Treasuries didn't get a renewed uh, massive wave of selling. Do you think directionally Tepper may be right here? Well, good economic news is actually becoming bad news for investors, and that's what we saw Friday. Payrolls coming in at almost double expectations Yield curve is, the yields are starting to spike, and that's causing investors to become jittery. What we need is clarity on three key things. The first is whether this backup in rates is orderly or disorderly. 
Our view is that this is a growth-driven spike in rates, and so therefore it's orderly. We're not seeing the typical things that cause an economy to overheat, like a tight labor market. Secondly is inflation. We think it's more of a fear than reality because the Fed should stay focused on long-term inflation, which should stay moderate, even though we do expect to see a spike in short-term inflation. And then finally, what can we do in terms of yield curve control if we need to do it? I think, firstly, the Fed could communicate more about it. Maybe we'll see more of that at the, at the FOMC meeting on March 16th. And then also, the Fed can also use its balance sheet in order to try to influence the shape of the yield curve. So all of those things together, once we get more clarity, it should reduce volatility for the markets. And we do agree generally that higher earnings will drive the markets higher this year. Yeah. Um, have you been impressed? I know Goldman had a note over the weekend, uh, largely constructive based on uh, flows, uh, despite all the worries about rising rates. Have you been at least encouraged by the degree to which uh, flows indicate continued interest in equities? It's great. We've been seeing strong flows into equities since November, into active management. Not surprised to see it because in these higher rate, higher inflation environments, equity tends to look more attractive. We do think that that continue because this move up is going to be more sustainable. And that's why we've been fans of areas such as cyclicals and small caps and emerging markets this year, because those are where you're going to get the most bang for your buck in terms of leverage to this global synchronized economic recovery. That being said, Sarah, I wonder, are there opportunities in tech right now, given the big downdraft we've seen very broadly? Yeah, our long-term view is on cyclicals and financials and the return of the consumer. But given the malaise we've seen in, in technology, we're starting to see some value there. Investors are going to pay for high-quality technology stocks, but less so for premium valuations. So a little bit more into attractive structural growth companies like Alphabet and Facebook, which have more reasonable valuations. Facebook has over two and a half billion users, 10 plus million advertisers. Both of these companies are part of this structural trend to more and more digital advertising. We think they're both very well positioned going forward. And their valuations don't look as expensive as some of these other technology companies, which are selling off because they're long duration in a higher rate environment. Um, so I guess just talking about this uh, rotation we've seen and, and the orderly nature of it, is there anything, I mean, what do you see as the biggest risk to the market right now? The investors get very concerned when yields start to spike quickly, and that's what we saw recently. So as long as it's more of a normal slope upwards and the yield curve remains uh, kind of in a more managed fashion, we think we'll be able to handle this. We do expect to see a short-term spike in inflation, and that is going to bring volatility to the, to the markets. But as long as this is sort of a broad-based recovery over time, I think investors will be able to handle it. Uh, you, we do have the stimulus coming in, which uh, is another positive for the markets. All of this should lead to earnings growth getting stronger and stronger as 2021 goes on. Earlier, uh, you mentioned the, the prospects, or at least what would happen if the labor market uh, truly got tight. I don't know if Goldman is right and whether or not we're going to end the year at 4-1. It's certainly not in the threes, but it's, it's getting close. Uh, would you describe 4-1 as tight, and, and what would be the implications of that? I mean, 4-1 is getting obviously tighter than we are today. What we would be watching for, one of the keys is wage inflation. So it's not just a low unemployment rate. It's how much wage inflation are we seeing. And that will start to go through the economy and lead to higher inflation over time. So that is a key indicator that we're keeping an eye on. And we're not seeing a lot of wage inflation right now, which is why we're not concerned that inflation is going to become very hot in the near term.
I do want to get your thoughts on the fact that we have seen the dollar and the dollar index strengthen and, and pretty notably just in the last couple of weeks, especially when we talk about something like investing in cyclicals. How are you thinking about that? Yeah, dollar, you know, we expect it to be more of a flat, flattish environment from here. We're not expecting a lot of dollar weakness going forward, but that's why we're positive on emerging markets where we think those currencies can strengthen as the rest of the world comes back. We particularly like those emerging markets countries that suffered greatly during the coronavirus pandemic. So this is Latin America where Brazil and Mexico were hit very hard. The vaccine is key to them recovering. Mexico and U.S. relations should improve from here. And actually, we still like China, even though they, they performed quite well during the pandemic. The valuations of Chinese companies are not incredibly expensive now. You can find uh, technology stocks in China that are cheaper than in the U.S. and also areas where the consumer in China will come back to normal, like Macau Gaming. We like those two areas in that region. And it, and it sounds also like, um, given the fact that Fang really hasn't done a whole heck of a lot in about six months, that at least on Alphabet and Facebook, uh, you think the valuations at this point are just not keeping up with their growth trajectory? Yeah, we think that really the valuations do not reflect the strong structural sustainable growth of both of these companies. They have very strong balance sheets. They have so many different areas that they can grow in for Alphabet. It's healthcare, it's self-driving cars, it's advertising and the cloud. These are all areas that we're very positive on. And then, of course, Facebook with its dominant footprint around the world. You just think the valuations are not reflecting really the full value of these companies. Uh, Sarah, again, congratulations. Uh, it's great to see you. Appreciate you helping us kick off the hour this morning. Thanks very much. Sarah Malik uh, joining us uh, from Nuveen. We'll take a break here. Uh, speaking of FANG, got some calls to get to this morning, including upgrades of Salesforce and Microsoft, even a Peloton upgrade in there, as well as Coke. Don't go away. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Now, the Senate has passed the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. The ball, so to speak, is now in the House's court. Elon Moy joins us now, and she has the latest for us. Elon. Oh, good morning, David. The House will hold a final vote on the COVID relief bill tomorrow, putting Democrats on track to get it signed into law before unemployment benefits run out at the end of this week. Now, speaking at the White House, President Biden said the $1.9 trillion package will help speed up vaccinations and hire workers to get shots in arms. And as for those stimulus checks that Democrats campaigned on, Biden said they would start going out later this month. 
Now, the president also pointed to recent polls that show the legislation is popular among the public, including a significant number of Republican voters. No Republican lawmakers have supported it, but Biden said that he's still hopeful there will be bipartisanship in the years ahead. There's a lot of Republicans that came very close. They've got a lot of pressure on them. I still haven't given up on getting their support. Biden will meet with a small business that received a PPP loan later this week, and he's expected to keep touting this package even after he signs it into law. That is one of the lessons he says that he learned from the financial crisis in 2009. Democrats didn't take the time to showcase the benefits of their rescue plan, and then they lost control of the House in the next election cycle. Guys, the administration believes the COVID relief package can be both good policy and good politics. Back to you. Yeah, Elon, just quickly, what do we expect out of the House there? I mean, I know the progressives may have been disappointed that the Senate version didn't include an increase in the minimum wage. But is that really going to pose an issue at all or any concern there? Yeah, for that one, they were sort of able to blame the parliamentarian and the rules of the road here. So um, while they are upset the minimum wage isn't included, this is not going to derail their support for this package. They put out a statement over the weekend saying that the size and scope of the package meets the scale of this crisis. And so they still believe that at its core, it is uh, a strong package and that the changes that were made on the Senate side were sort of minor concessions. So it does look like uh, this will get the all clear in the House and that will pave the way for President Biden to sign it. Elon, I'm really curious about some of these tax credit uh, implications where children are concerned for families under certain uh, economic thresholds. I mean, um, it, it seems like there's been a lot put in here that that sort of sets the stage and builds the foundation well beyond the pandemic uh, in terms of the types of payments people could receive uh, for children. Yeah, this is really innovative, and actually it's one of the things that progressives point to as one of the big wins in the package, the expansion of the child tax credit, um, and not just increasing the size and the amount, but also making it refundable on a regular basis. So these would be able to be uh, received by families on a periodic basis, if not monthly basis. Um, and so this is really getting us toward um, a world where we might see something like a universal basic income mm -hmm. or sort of regular direct payments to people. And that is a real uh, change and difference in the way that we look at policy and the way that we look at the social safety net. Elon Moy, thank you. I'm sure we're going to be talking to you a lot about this uh, as the week unfolds here. Um, Carl, I mean, it is it is pretty incredible on the on the one on the one hand, um, you know, you can make the argument that the Democrats got pretty much uh, almost everything that they were looking for um, out of this bill. There's some stuff that's that's not here and some stuff that's been altered, but not very much. Um, it certainly passed uh, basically along party lines. And the Republicans, of course, would argue that um, there's a lot here that going back to that point, just to, just around some of the child's um, tax uh, implications that are perhaps longer term and stretch beyond the pandemic and COVID. Um, and I guess it really kind of talks to just how uh, partisan um, the budget situation continues to be, Carl. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the Times framed it over the weekend as, as Biden betting, uh, betting on the poor, betting on helping the economy through the lens of the poor, uh, $40 billion in child care, $40 billion in housing assistance, uh, things that uh, the right would argue have nothing to do with COVID relief. 
Uh, I see we ran uh, the front page of that uh, journal editorial this morning, but mm. the editorial board does write, the goal of this program isn't COVID relief. The point is to expand and solidify the role of government as the guarantor, David, of every American's income, unlinked to any obligation to work. And that's a far cry from the tax cut we got in 17. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, listen, my question is, what will what will follow now? Right. One point nine trillion. Now there is a hope that there'll be some sort of infrastructure legislation. Is there going to be a stomach for it? Are you going to be able to get it passed again? Uh, as Morgan says, a divided Senate, uh, possibly. Um, certainly we know we need it. Uh, but uh, that will be a key question. I think that the markets are also going to try to suss out. Is there even more coming behind it, Morgan? Yeah. And how are we going to pay for all of it? That's one of the other key questions, especially as we continue to look at the Treasury markets. Uh, and we continue to talk about the implications for equities as well. And that's just in the near term. I mean, think about the long term. So here's another look at futures in the meantime, as we do count down to the opening bell, which is just eight minutes away. Um, we're starting to see a turnaround here for the S&P and Dow, both poised to open higher. The Nasdaq, however, is poised to open lower again. Stay with us. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Some pre-market Dow leaders this morning. Uh, Disney's on top. The Stones throw from 200 once again. Not only was it the best weekend for North American box office uh, since the pandemic began, but of course California now uh, looking to open theme parks, and that would include Disneyland as early as April 1st. Big market day ahead uh, to start the week. We're back in a moment. A large amount of the upcoming U.S. stimulus checks will probably find their way into equities. That's according to Deutsche, who's out with a survey that shows half of 25 to 34-year-olds plan to spend 50 percent of their COVID relief checks on stocks. 18 to 24-year-olds in the survey, about 40 percent, 35 to 50-year-olds, still 37 percent, David. Man. So this is not necessarily a generational thing. No. Uh, you know, listen, a year ago, if I had told you, Carl, that there would be this uh, emerging cohort of of uh, new investors, so to speak, retail investors who would power the market higher uh, through the sp- late spring and into the summer. And then and then things would get even crazier in terms of uh, Reddit and Wall Street bets, uh, not to mention SPACs. I mean, you wouldn't we all would have said what millions upon millions of accounts, Morgan, have been open, uh, not mm-hmm. just, of course, at Robinhood, but uh, at, at, at firms uh, far and wide. And one of the key questions continues to be, will they stay with us? Um, apparently, if they get some more money, at least that will help. But certainly there have been some losses lately. We know that in some of the more speculative names. And that is a question, at least, as to how th- that uh, cohort will react. Yeah. And it, when we also know that, you know, the last couple of weeks alone has been a very volatile market more broadly. I mean, just look at the Nasdaq, the move on Friday alone. The Nasdaq 100 sold off 2 percent in the morning and then rallied 4 percent in the afternoon. But one of those names that, of course, we have continued to cover so closely 
is GameStop. Uh, and you're getting news out of that company again this morning that the Chewy co-founder, Ryan Cohen, who's on the board, and I think that news had helped sort of spark that run-up. We did see um, at, earlier in the year that he's going to lead the e-commerce sh- shift there. And, of course, Cohen is sort of seen as one of those leaders, at least at Chewy, that was able to counter the rise of Amazon uh, where pet stuff was concerned. So certainly, again, another name to watch. Look at that. It's up 12 percent right now in the pre-market. Carl. Yeah. At, uh, you know, yeah. At, at Carl, at some point you start to wonder whether there's enough time has passed where they could actually do that uh, issue of stock that Jim Cramer has been urging them to do. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, at some yeah. point this does become the price. I mean, it, it's it, we're talking many weeks now at an elevated level. Yeah. Yeah, David, you're right. I mean, issuance has been such an amazing story. It's not over yet either. I see Americans going to do two and a half billion of five years, uh, two and a half billions of eight years. Um, so uh, companies will will uh, put the bucket out while it's raining. There's the opening bell, guys, uh, and a look at the S&P 500 at the bottom of your screen. Um, Interesting on airlines, uh, David, the couple headlines. One is that Southwest is going to be adding some service to new cities. Again, one of those incremental reopening headlines that we're looking at. Uh, The other is that airline CEO insider sales in February, uh, almost 50 million. That's a three-year high of insider sales at airlines after having had very few uh, in the month prior. So we'll see. A lot of interesting timing going on, especially as we watch the insider flows. Yeah, that is, that is. I saw that same report. I also obviously saw a report from Phil Lebeau on Squawk Box talking about the hopes that uh, they, amongst the airlines that perhaps they could get back to uh, break even. We'll talk a bit more about that. But your point is also a key one, issuance. It's been equity. It's been debt. And it continues, of course, as they have to obviously make up for what have been significant losses and put themselves in a position to continue to be able to compete and potentially return to profitability. Though, Morgan, they've held up perhaps a lot better than, and again, we're going to start referring to sort of the anniversary of that period where the market started to quake, uh, and we all realized this was perhaps more serious than we had in the weeks leading up to March. March 14th is the date I always think about. That was the exodus uh, from uh, from Mm. New York City, at least, for many people. uh, if they could, in fact, leave. But uh, but we are going to anniversary so much of this. And at that time, the airline's future certainly did not seem to be particularly bright. No, I cannot believe. I mean, I still cannot believe it's been a year. I mean, what a jam-packed year it's been. But my golly, I mean, just to put that in perspective, it's also, you know, you have this report out of the Wall Street Journal. I have a feeling you've probably been keeping an eye on it, David, yeah. um, about GCAS GE. over yeah. at GE uh, and AirCap. And when you see... Uh, what has gone on with the airlines and what that's going to mean as they do emerge and recover uh, from the worst of, of the air travel implications of this pandemic. Um, I would imagine it's probably going to be a pretty good time to be an aircraft um, leasing company, especially a, a larger one, if they can get that through regulators, if it indeed is something that is going to move forward and officially happen, because those airlines, those passenger airlines, perhaps not as much capital on the books to actually outright buy their aircraft. So right. the idea of being able to go to um, one of these companies yeah. uh, is going to be that much more attractive. No doubt. I mean, GCAS, of course, what, 1,600 aircraft owned or on order, uh, and uh, AirCap, uh Somewhat similar. It would create, as you say, a giant. We don't know terms. By the way, I can tell you, I checked in this morning. Uh, Yes, they are talking. Yes, it is ongoing. Um, Doesn't appear they're going to have something for us today, although we'll see. Perhaps tomorrow. 
but uh, don't have a lot of insight beyond, obviously, the journal reporting on it. They didn't have any details. As you might imagine, it could be a fairly complex transaction when you're putting together these two. But this was one of the units, at least, that GE kept when it, when mm-hmm. it uh, dispatched much of GE capital. Unfortunately for shareholders, another thing that they kept was what they couldn't sell, which we thought they had sold years earlier, which was those long-term care policies that came back to cost the company tens of billions. But this has always been a valuable uh, asset. And as you say, continues to be. And so we will watch closely the stock already reacting positively to at least the prospect of a potential deal with Aircap. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. It was only a couple of years ago that GCAS, it was sort of like a line in the sand that GCAS were going to keep. It was considered something of a cash cow. Uh, it countered uh, those insurance liabilities as well within that uh, capital unit. But it was also always considered, I think, very attractive, especially from like a private equity, for example, standpoint, uh, an attractive asset. So kind of speaks to uh, the turning tide here, Carl, uh, within aerospace as we do continue to look for these signs of recovery. Um, There was also an upgrade this morning on Spirit Aerosystems speaking to that expected recovery in commercial aviation as well. Yeah. Uh, GE leading the S&P uh, doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, uh, get you noticed. Uh, at 14 and change here, David, yeah, this is going to take you back to, I think, basically May of 18. Um, uh, as we continue to look for further signs of uh, strength in aviation, I see TSA passenger load uh, statistics today over the weekend. you got to go back to January to see numbers that high. Uh, and, it, and by the way, uh, GE today followed by names like uh, American and UAL and Southwest and some retail, too. So the the reopening play is, is fresh uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the tech sell off to the degree you call it a, a sell off. David Apple is the worst performing Dow component at the moment. Yeah. Uh, although still slightly above two trillion dollars in market cap, at least according to my system. And I did notice on Friday for a bit it had fallen below that into the one point nine trillion level. But to your point, down 10 percent uh, for the year. Uh, and Facebook also is down about three and a half percent. Netflix down almost five percent again for the year for the year. But that points to some of the sell off Tesla, which we followed so closely, is also down yet again. Uh, about 1.5 percent. But its losses now for this year, about 16 percent after that incredible uh, move it had during the course of 2020. Still has a $560 billion market uh, value. A few uh, deals to get to this morning. Uh, I don't know, we'll call it an M&A Monday. One is Apollo. Not doing much, by the way. Apollo uh, uh, APO. Apollo Global Management uh, acquiring Athene. This is not Athena. This is not a healthcare company or healthcare related. Um, they already own 35%, and they're going to be bringing it in uh, overall. What's perhaps the most important part of the Apollo deal is actually they're going to become a C-Corp. Uh, one share, one vote, uh, similar to what KKR did and what Blackstone has done, and that would certainly see, seem to be a potential positive for Apollo uh, incoming uh, CEO Mark Rowan saying it's all about alignment between Apollo and Athene amongst Apollo stockholders and their limited partners. Uh, and you saw some of the other deals. There's yeah, there's some specifics to it. Seventy six twenty four is again, they already own thirty five percent of it. Expect close about a, a little less than uh, but let's call it 10 months or so from now. You can see Apollo not doing much of anything, though. It is a bit of a premium for Athene. Other deals. Uh, well, we told you coherent. Remember, um, and that's happened. Uh, at least it, uh, the bids came in and uh, two six. They like those Roman numerals. It's not even a spec. 
but they still went with the Roman numerals, uh, two six. Uh, their bid would seem to be or is deemed superior, which puts Lumentum on the clock in terms of choosing whether it wants to come back. There's a look at it. 170, 1.0981. Uh, and it is deemed superior to that previous deal they had with Lumentum. You had another potential bidder in there as well, but again, it would appear 2-6 uh, for now is in the uh, position to win this three-way. It was a three-way uh, bidding war. And as always, Morgan, we're keeping an eye on SPACs this morning. Got to keep an eye on them, too. The various families, uh, certainly uh, Mr. Paula Hapatia's, uh, which continue to get a lot of focus uh, and uh, got beat up uh, last week, as we all know. Um, and so we're watching. You know, also questions about pledge securities. There's been some interesting things written. I know you followed Virgin very closely in the mm-hmm. sale there. Um, don't have answers, but, you know, we do know, for example, in Clover, he's got a lot of pledge securities. I think as much as $10 million. This is all in filings. Uh, Virgin Galactic, he did have a lot as, uh, a while back, as much as $400 million. But I guess he's all out now of that, of that stock. Isn't that correct? Yeah, his personal stake. Yeah, personal uh, his personal stake. stake is all out. I mean, he still owns through social capital. Right. Um, so indirectly, uh, and, and he did say uh, in terms of that sale, that two hundred thirteen million dollars, two hundred thirteen million dollars worth of stock sale that took place last week. That that's money that's going to go towards a, a new significant investment uh, countering climate change. Nonetheless, I mean, just to look at. Virgin Galactic, which is one of those SPAC names, one of those high-flying names that doesn't actually have commercial operations and, and really a source of revenue, let alone profits at this point. It's trading at 27 right now. Last month, it was trading as high as 60. Um, there have been a number of things going on with this company, including the delay of launch of that commercial service until next year at the earliest. But again, to your point, just speaks to what we've seen in pockets of this market that were so high-flying uh, just a little while ago, getting hit so much harder than the broader market, Carl. Yeah, guys, um, we mentioned a couple other calls. And despite the relative underperformance uh, this morning of tech, uh, Goldman does take uh, Salesforce. By the way, happy, uh, happy birthday, Salesforce, founded today 20-plus uh, years ago. They take Salesforce and Microsoft to conviction buy, uh, both with targets of 315. Peloton was the other interesting one, David, uh, which uh, MKM takes to buy target 130. It did get down to 94 um, as uh, the supply chain issues and the reopening uh, narrative took hold. Uh, MKM's broader point is that uh, the supply issue, uh, chain, the chain issues are getting better and that there will remain some uh, sticky uh, uh, adherence to the brand. Uh, So they're taking that opportunity. But that's the name, again, that got into the 170s, I think, back in early January. Yeah. Uh, I always like to look at what their estimate is for uh, full-year revenues. It looks like $4.1 billion for this year. So the stock trading roughly at about 6.7 times um, estimated uh, revenues for this year. But to your point, uh, Carl, it's had incredible growth. The question, though, Morgan, is will this trade continue as in those that have benefited so much from the yeah. lockdown uh, going down as we open? How, how great is this so-called moat around Peloton uh, and how and just how much are people going to want to get out of their houses and go to actual gyms as well? I think that's going to be a key question. But the fact that they did have some shipping issues and some congestion on that front, we've been talking about what we've seen in terms of spike in freight rates and issues at the ports, particularly on the West Coast. This has been one of those names that I think has been ensnarled in, in all of that. And just to go back to what we were talking about with 
passenger um, air travel coming back, so much cargo flies in the bellies of those types of planes. So as you see more of those aircrafts come back online, I'd expect that's going to help with some of those shipping rates and shipping hiccups as well, Carl. Um, real quick, Carl, I wanted to yep. jump in and correct something I said. Apollo's uh, been a C-Corp for a while. They are moving to one share, one vote. So I did, uh, didn't get that uh, correct. I apologize. Um, but they are moving to one share, one vote. Uh, Blackstone, I don't believe, is. But I think they're all C-Corps at this point. I uh, just wanted to clarify that. Back over to you. All right. Yeah, no, Apollo's uh, been busy last uh, last week or two. So, um, ten year just south of one six, we got a record high on the transports. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Hey, Bob. Good morning, guys. Uh, happy Monday. Uh, mixed open, three to two, advancing to declining stocks, but it's the reopening stocks that are doing a little bit better this morning. So, just take a look. Uh, yields up a little bit, so banks are doing a little bit better. Uh, we're seeing nice moves up in industrials and energy materials. There's your reopening names. Tech, as you can see here, uh, is flattish. A uh, lot of news over the weekend about that Microsoft email uh, problem. If you're looking for a jump in cybersecurity, you normally would see this on that kind of announcement, but you're not today. Uh, some of the big names are kind of flattish on the open. So Palo Alto, FireEye, uh, Checkpoint, really not doing too much, as you can see here. Very modest moves to the upside. Part of the problem is these stocks are suffering from the same valuation concerns all the tech names are suffering from since interest rates started going up. They're not cheap. FireEye's 50 times forward earnings. Palo Alto Networks, that's another one. That's probably 50, 55 times forward earnings. These stocks all got hit badly when interest rates started going up. That's been a major issue. In fact, that's the big debate on the street right now. Is there a second phase uh, of interest rate acceleration that's going to happen. You see where we are in the markets right now. The reopening is continuing. You heard about the stimulus going through. It looks like it's going through. You heard about the vaccine. Uh, 2021 earnings are increasing. The estimates are increasing, but slower than they were in the fourth quarter, but still going up. Now the battle's over that long end of the yield curve. So we started uh, 1.1 mid-February, started moving up very quickly in the middle of February, February 16th, really, uh, 1.5. Now we're close to 1.6, essentially. And this has caused tremendous damage to high growth tech stocks, to high cash flow uh, expectations, because it lowers the present value of the cash flow stream those companies are throwing off. So the hit to big tech names, we noted all last week, you saw Xilinx, PayPal, AMD, these are all more than 20% off of their recent highs. And their highs were, for the most part, back in February. So in six weeks, we've had quite a correction in the tech space. Even Apple, the big tech leader, 17% off the highs. The debate now is what happens if we go to 2% on the 10-year? Some feel we could get another 5% to 10% leg down. It's debatable, but it certainly wouldn't generally be good. The good news is that for owners of the beaten down assets, we've had mean reversion. The chief stuff the cheap stuff, has become the real comeback winners of the year. The losers of last year are this year's winners. So what were the big losers last year? Energy stocks and bank stocks. What's the big winners this year? Energy stocks and bank stocks. And what were the big winners last year? The NASDAQ 100, consumer staples, consumer discretionary. What are the big losers this year? (laughs) NASDAQ 100, consumer staples, and consumer discretionary. So this is the classic kind of mean reversion. And if you are a Jack Bogle disciple, Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, uh, he would say, folks, this is why you stay in big 
index funds, because if you are very long tech stocks, you're not very happy right now. You're a good 10 percent off of the recent highs. But wait a minute. If you just own the S&P 500 because of the rally in the other sectors, you're only 3 percent off. You barely even noticed anything is moving. And even the Dow Industrial is only down 2 percent. And as you saw the transports, they're actually essentially at a record high right now, as you heard from Carl. There's the argument for those for the ownership of the big index names. When you get mean reversion, you barely move. Guys, back to you. Yeah, perhaps it's not so surprising that we're seeing mean reversion to your point. Bob Pisani, thank you. We are on yield watch, as Bob just mentioned. We're right below 1.6% on the 10-year. We're going to go to Rick Santelli for more. Hey, Rick. Good morning. Indeed. You know, if you consider inflation somewhere between 1.5% and 2%, then a 159 10-year or a 230 30-year, of course, are right on the cusp of giving you some actual return some real yields and maybe that's something to pay extra close attention to everyone today tepper some big names that we've had on cnbc weighing in on rates i'll weigh in on one respect never pick tops never never pick tops we're still guns hot in these interest rates the real issue in my opinion is to pick where we know it crosses over to the upside to accelerate momentum and where we see correction if it moves in the opposite direction. But we are guns hot. Look at an intraday of 10s. Look at a two-day, maybe more important. We hit 162 on Friday. We hit 161 today. So even though we are guns hot, we're hovering, we're not giving up any ground, it's not like we're going like a hot knife through butter for higher rates. And if you open the chart up to early August, The low on the fourth was 50 basis points, the all-time low. So this is a great reason why you should never, never, never use percentages to talk about interest rates. So a 10-year note yield at 160 is up 220%. 220%. The issue continues to be just like poker. We're going to check to the highest bidder. You know who that is? The central bank, the Federal Reserve. Many investors want to see what the Fed does. Do they increase purchases? They can, but if they do, they really do lose a bit more control and confidence of many investors. That's what we really want to be looking at is what the Fed does, how they verbally respond to what rates are doing. Let's look overseas. Boons. Here's a chart of Boons for a couple of weeks. Yes, they were very hot. They shot up to minus 20. See on the left, but they've kind of gone flat. That is a hint. I think we're in consolidation mode, but don't look to give up a huge amount from these levels. Finally, let's look at tens minus twos. It's over a five-year high, hovering at 144. Banks will like that. And the dollar index, the surprise over the last couple weeks is the rebound. It's now at the best levels since November. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you, uh, Rick Santelli. Still to come this morning, the governor of Connecticut, who is lifting capacity limits on restaurants and other businesses later this month while keeping the mask mandate. We'll talk to Ned Lamont uh, in the coming minutes. In the meantime, NASDAQ has joined the major indices in the green. S&P 3860 is almost back to Wednesday's high. Despite New York State continuing to ease some pandemic restrictions, the Journal today says few Broadway professionals are expecting theater shows to return to the Great White Way in the spring or summer. Uh, Some producers tell the Journal returning to theaters isn't that easy, given that Broadway's model, David, uh, kind of only works when they have the ability to play at full capacity. A lot of those theaters are decades and decades old, um, and they just don't have perhaps... Uh, the ventilation that we're looking for in areas of the economy where you could open. 
Yeah, they need every seat full, uh, to your point. Uh, to, to, and they need it full every night to, to be able to. Uh, and as, as you probably well know, Carl, most shows don't actually turn a profit. But, uh, but those that do, <laughs> and all of them, need every mm-hmm. seat filled. And in this environment, it's still hard to imagine you're going to be able to do that, even if they allow 50% capacity. And then, Morgan, what people's readiness and willingness is going to be to, to pile into a, to, a, to an old theater without great ventilation. Maybe everybody will wear masks, but still remains unclear. And some of the most successful Broadway shows of recent years have been ones that have in large part hinged uh, on those foreign visitors as well, those tourists uh, to the New York area, uh, uh, too. But it is interesting to hear that after comments from Live Nation last week on the heels of earnings, starting to see um, a recovery. Also this morning, some numbers from Eventbrite. But we'll get into more of that later, Carl. Yeah, uh, still very important to New York's recovery. We'll take a break here, guys. The Dow is less than 1% from an all-time high. S&P 500 less than 2% away. Take a look at some of the leaders on the NASDAQ 100. Peloton's going to top the list. We mentioned the MKM upgrade as they go to buy Target 130. Uh, It's really only going to take you back to Wednesday's action, but that's up 20 bucks from Friday's low. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. It's becoming more crowded on airplanes and the American public is getting ready to start traveling in even greater numbers. Phil LeBeau has more on the increase in bookings ahead of the summer season. Hey, Phil. Hey, Morgan, the summer surge is coming, and that's one reason why the airline stocks have been moving higher. Take a look at all of them this morning. They're all up between 1% and 4%. Uh, part of this is the optimism about what's coming this summer. Look at the seat capacity increase for all of these companies. OAG, which tracks the uh, number of seats that are on airline flights, we asked them to run some data. Now, this is compared to April. In May, it's going to be up 30%, then 36% in June. And by July, they will have 41% more seats. The domestic airfare is also moving higher. So they're expecting to fill these seats. The average for the summertime, as of right now, according to Hopper, which tracks airfares and then projects what they're expected to do, $225. By the way, Hopper also says that domestic airfare searches, online searches, up 58%. Here's one airline to watch here. We're talking about Spirit because it's up a substantial amount over the last six months. And by the way, Carl, Spirit is expecting a quick snapback, far quicker than many people in the industry were expecting. And they're expecting that to start soon, as in April, early to mid-April. That's when they're expecting to see people getting back on board and going places. Uh, it's remarkable, Phil. I'm looking at a Goldman report this morning, looking at uh, 60 to 70 percent of the population immune uh, by Q2 or early Q3. Yeah, uh, with Europe just a couple of months behind the U.S. and U.K. That's Goldman. So that's going to lead you right to booking a flight. And we can see exactly. how some of these prices may begin to move. Uh, Phil, thanks. Uh, that's our Phil LeBeau covering uh, what summer travel may be like. Good Monday morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk in the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Morgan Brennan. Interesting action here. A little bit of bounce uh, and some chop, but uh, that's to be expected after that crazy uh, 3% range on Friday. Wholesale trade is up. Let's get back to Santelli. Yes, our January file on wholesale inventories. So we take our mid-month read, which is one3 But that now becomes the final because that is the number, up 1.3. What's notable about this, and this series of data points goes back to 1992, is that the all-time high is 2.1. 
The second highest levels are 1.4 from February 12th. That's what this comps to. So we know inventories are zooming. It makes sense. The demand is going to be zooming most likely. And on the sales side, boy, up almost 5%, up 4.9. We're expecting a number around 1%. So that becomes the January number. And that is a biggie. Sequentially, it follows a revised 1.9. But consider that it takes you all the way back to the all-time high, which was June at 9 So that's where we basically are comping to uh, these numbers of the summer of 2020. And indeed, interest rates continue to be at some of the firmest levels in 13 months. Morgan, back to you. Rick Santelli, thank you. We're going to continue to keep an eye on that. Uh, and to your point, Carl, we did, we have seen some choppy action this morning um, with the Dow and the S&P. The S&P is largely flat. The Dow's uh, the outperformer. It's up about half a percent of the major averages. The Nasdaq continues to be under pressure right now. In terms of the sectors that are in the red, um, it is tech. Uh, it's also communication services, and it's also energy stocks. Everything else uh, is in the green. We're now with the gain this morning, less than, I believe, 1% from the record high for the Dow, just speaking to uh, how much volatility we have seen more broadly in the last couple of weeks. Uh, indeed, and you mentioned uh, the transports, which uh, end up using a lot of energy, uh, oil, and that's why uh, WTI is going to be in focus. We mentioned earlier we, get, we got close to 68 this morning, that was the highest since October of 2018 uh, before settling back. But, David, the gains in oil year-to-date are almost 40 percent. And mm. uh, and from covering Exxon as well as you have so far this year, big implications for how those models evolve. Yeah. Uh, and Exxon shares, as you say, uh, although down today uh, slightly, up 47 percent uh, this year, uh, outpacing, by the way, Chevron uh, significantly, although Chevron shares are also up strongly, in part because of Exxon's various moves on different fronts, uh, both CapEx, OpEx, also uh, ESG, uh, responding to pressure from from some shareholders, Morgan. But uh, it has been an extraordinary move for both of those stocks. Of course, the underperformers last year, uh, both energy and financials, have been the strongest performers thus far as groups this year. Yeah, that's exactly where we're going to kick it off with our next guest. Joining us now, BNY Mellon Wealth Management Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Head of Equity, Sinead Colton-Grant. Sinead, thanks for being with us this morning. Delighted to be here. Uh, One of the things you bring up in your notes uh, is just the fact that this traditional 60-40 split portfolio breakdown might not make sense right now, given what we're seeing uh, in terms of market action. What do you mean? Well, if you think about traditional 60-40, you've got 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds. And the expected return from bonds is lower. Um, You know, we're seeing market action, where yields have been backing up. We all know that rates are incredibly low right now. Um, and so really what we mean by that is you're going to need alternatives to help you um, deliver on some of those returns. And so particularly private equity, where we have seen stronger returns, um, and it also helps to diversify the portfolio. All right. I want to also bring in Anwiti Bahuguna to this conversation, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Multi-Asset strategy um, over at Columbia Threadneedle Investments on on Weetie. I want to get your thoughts on the market action we're seeing today uh, and I guess specifically where you think rates go from here and what that means for equities. Hi, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Um, That's an excellent question on rates. I think that's a question on everyone else's mind as well. 
I think for the moment, I think we may see a bit of pause given the speed with which we have seen rates rise. But looking beyond maybe a tactical range for the next few weeks or so, the move for rates, Morgan, is up. I mean, we're, we're, we're facing a massive upgrade to growth for the U.S. this year and potentially next year, so next year also. So I don't see rates um, staying long, at a, uh, staying low for too long. So do you? I, I mean, before so we the, go ahead, Carl. Go ahead, no, Morgan, please. I was just going to say. So then the comments we got from David Pepper this morning. Uh, it doesn't sound like you're on board. It sounds like we're going higher. Um, in the over the next. 12 to 18 months, absolutely, rates are going higher. Uh, Sinead, to the degree that the Fed is going to communicate uh, whatever kind of pivot they're going to make, whether it's yield curve control, whether it's tapering, timing on a a rate hike later down the road, um, do you you think that's going to come in the form of minutes, uh, an actual statement, an appearance by Powell somewhere, I guess, we're trying to game out just how they're, they say they're going to communicate it in time. I guess the method now is the larger question. It's a great question, and it's really important because we've seen how some of the communications in the past um, perhaps have not been as smoothly received as, uh, as perhaps the Fed would want them to be. But look, very clearly, Short-end rates are anchored. We know that. The Fed has been very clear about communicating a more symmetrical inflation target. Um, And so we would expect that gradually, um, and this is very gradually, this is not tomorrow, that you're going to see that start to be um, filtered into, we would expect, comments at first. Um, And let's not forget, we also get the Fed's projections every quarter. And to the extent that you're seeing a shift in expectations, that's where you'll start to see it. Um, But we still think that the Fed has been very, very clear. The market is looking ahead to inflation. And yes, it will presumably move a little bit higher. But we do think that's transitory. And those effects will be reasonably short-lived. All of the factors that have kept inflation low since the financial crisis are still in place. So demographics, technology change, um, and we're really struggling to see what has fundamentally changed there. Hmm. I did notice uh, this morning Morgan Stanley cut um, their view on emerging market FX and emerging market bonds for the second time in a couple of weeks. And um, although we don't talk international as much as we talk uh, domestic asset classes, I wonder what implications you're seeing from this larger discussion about what what, uh, EM may do over the, say, next couple of quarters. We continue to like emerging markets. We think it's got tremendous exposure to to global growth. It also helps uh, with uh, some of this orientation more towards value that we've been seeing over the last week or so. And let's not forget, investors are pretty smart. So if global growth is rising, they don't want to pay up for growth stocks. And that's some of the rotation that we've been seeing um, this year. But when it comes to emerging markets, they do perform better when you see a weaker dollar. If we're seeing rates moving up or expectations of rates moving up in the U.S., and we've certainly seen yields back up, that tends to also impact expectations for the dollar. But our outlook is that the dollar is flat to weaker. So um, it 
It's certainly not the sole driving factor, but it gives a really nice tailwind to EM. And Witte, I want to get your thoughts on that, too, just given the fact that it has been a pretty dramatic move uh, in recent weeks uh, for the U.S. dollar in terms of strengthening. Yes, I, I think dollar view is very key, key in, um, things of ter- in, in terms of having an EM view. And I think some of the weakness we saw in the dollar last year was pretty much driven by risk-on environment in the rest of the asset classes. So, you know, when the, when the March crisis happened last year, markets fell, dollar strengthened as a risk off move, and then as that risk-off period was unwound, we saw dollar weaken significantly. But to your point, dollar's been sort of strong for the last few weeks or so. But uh, as the growth sort of impulse spreads globally, I would expect dollar to weaken again. And I think these next few weeks are an incredible opportunity to add to EM. EM equities, EMFX, they've been beaten down for the last one month or so, and we can see very attractive levels for emerging market equities. Pretty much we are getting a clean slate to start the year again, and we have a bullish view on EM equities for this year. All right, we're going to leave the conversation there. Sinead and Anwiti, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, uh, relief aid, a trillion here, 1.9 trillion there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. Elon Moy is here to add it all up for us in terms of the rising cost of those relief packages. Elon. Well, David, let's just take a step back for a moment and take stock of the sheer magnitude of fiscal support that we've seen over this past year. There were five bills signed into law, $4 trillion in spending, and a new record for red ink. Now, the biggest line item, $1.47 trillion for loan programs like the PPP and aid to airlines. Another $673 billion went toward income support. Think unemployment insurance. $472 billion went directly to testing, vaccines, and other measures to fight the virus itself. And we've sent $458 billion directly to the American people in the form of stimulus checks. Now, together, that's helped drive the national debt to surpass the size of the economy. The last time that happened was around World War II. And if we stay on this track, the debt will be double GDP in 2051. That would blow previous records out of the water. Now, that does not even take into account the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that's currently working its way through Congress. When you add that to the mix, the pandemic response will total 4.6% of GDP. For comparison, the response to the Great Recession was just 2.4% of GDP. The Senate has never spent $2 trillion in a more haphazard way or through a less rigorous process. Voters gave Senate Democrats the slimmest possible majority. Voters picked a president who promised unity and bipartisanship. Democrats' response is to ram through what they call, quote, the most progressive domestic legislation in a generation on a razor-thin majority in both houses. Now, as you can see, as the debt has piled up, the political will for more spending has dwindled, leading to the kind of party line votes that we're getting now. Guys. 
Uh, indeed, 2051 got, is getting a lot of ink today, Elon. Thank you, uh, Elon Moy. After the break, uh, don't miss Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont on the state's reopening strategy as we get some additional headlines uh, from New York State, for example, loosening restrictions on restaurants outside of New York City. Squawk on the streets back in a moment. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.